Welcome to the Newsbeat Podcast, where we examine critical issues of social justice. Each episode features interviews with prominent writers, educators, thought leaders, and activists, and is infused with original music and verses from independent artists. The Newsbeat Podcast, the New York Times Podcast Club Pick of the Week in January 2018, and featured podcast on Best of the Left. Here's your host, Manny Faces. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, host and producer of Newsbeat, where we weaponize journalism and original music to tackle the most important social justice and civil liberties issues of our time. Uh, We're brought to you by Maury Creative Studios, a New York-based inbound marketing, lead generation, and sales retention platinum HubSpot partner agency. Check them out at maurycreative.com. Welcome to another episode. Uh, This time around, we're examining a crisis that way too many people here in the United States know all too well, since they're living it, and that way too few politicians seem willing to address or even admit. Poverty in America, ironically, the wealthiest nation on earth. The stats are sobering and really sickening. There are more than 40 million Americans living in poverty. That's more than one in every eight citizens, nearly 13% of the population. And about half of those, roughly 18 and a half million people, are living in what's called deep or extreme poverty, scraping by on less than $2 a day. About 15 million children, or 21% of all children, live in families earning annual incomes below the federal poverty threshold of about $12,000 for an individual and $25,000 for a family of four. Again, this is the richest country in the world in terms of total wealth, the private wealth held by all the individuals living in each nation, where wealth inequality is also the most extreme of any other industrialized nation. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, unfortunately, this already dire situation is only getting worse. President Trump's recent, quote, big beautiful tax overhaul disproportionately benefits the wealthy, and nearly $2 trillion from critical social safety net programs and Medicaid has been targeted for the chopping block. I think it's important to note the timing of these hypocrisies. This year marks the 50th anniversary of perhaps the largest mobilized collective cross-section of America's disenfranchised, specifically demanding economic justice for the poor, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, which converged on Washington, D.C. in May and June of 1968, despite his assassination just a month earlier. Yet, as you'll hear in this episode, for millions of Americans, every single waking moment remains a brutal and often losing battle for survival in conditions akin to those of so-called third world countries. Illuminating all of this for us is Philip Alston, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, and also the John Norton Pomeroy Professor of Law at New York University School of Law. What I found essentially is that in many of those places, the uh, situation is pretty grim, that the conditions reminded me and others of uh, the situation in third world countries. Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and co-director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights and Social Justice. The average homeless person in this country is a a nine-year-old white girl. That's the face of homelessness. And Pramila Nadison, professor of history at Barnard College, Columbia University. By the 1950s and the 1960s, welfare increasingly admitted African-American women and Puerto Rican women as recipients. 
And this is the same moment when welfare becomes increasingly controversial. Our special musical guest this episode is the incredible hip-hop fusion artist, Liquid. All right, here we go. This is Land of the Rich, Home of the Poor, America's Poverty Crisis. I spent a couple of weeks traveling around America in my capacity as United Nations Special Rapporteur looking at the relationship between extreme poverty and the enjoyment of human rights. For this Poor People's Campaign, we've been crisscrossing the nation, connecting up with leaders in different poor communities across the country. And the last four or five months been in 20, 25 different places. I was in Detroit, Michigan, where there are tens of thousands of families who are living without running water. In Los Angeles, it was particularly interesting for me to hear local officials say that they were working very hard to ensure that the conditions for the homeless living on Skid Row would match those that are provided in refugee camps in Syria. 49 square blocks of downtown Los Angeles, an American encampment of 2,000 homeless like no other. Drug dealers working in the open. The effect on users, stark. Mental illness as rampant as is the trash on the street. In the city of angels, few care to retrieve the discarded. And then when I went to Alabama, where families are living amongst raw sewage, where tropical diseases like hookworm that were eradicated years and decades ago are re-emerging because of the lack of sanitation services in poor communities. People are using septic tanks, which are extremely expensive, very often don't work, and much of the sewage is simply being pumped out into local streams or just nearby open space. It's really the waste that comes out of the septic tank. It's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's like the raw sewage that come out of your body. It's the odor. It's the smell. It's the raw sewage that comes out of a person's body. That's what it is. There's no other way to explain it. What I found essentially is that in many of those places, the uh, situation is pretty grim. The conditions reminded me and others of uh, the situation in third world countries. Perhaps one of the main differences, in a sense, is that those third world countries would always plead that they simply don't have enough resources to do things differently. My visit to the US happened to coincide with the tax reform debates in Congress, where we saw one and a half trillion dollars being mobilized, not one penny of it going to welfare. And in fact, a significant amount of those transfers being funded by anticipated savings from the welfare budget. The biggest tax cut, biggest reform of all time. So it's an honor to have you with us and we will sign this right now. This is something I'm very proud of. Great for our country, great for the American people. Thank you all. Just all across this nation, there's a real crisis, a crisis of wages, a crisis of housing, a crisis of the lack of health care lack of adequate food and education, where 140 million people in this country are living in poverty or with low incomes. Poverty really affects people of all 
nationalities, all colors, all creeds in this country. The majority of poor people in this country are actually white in real numbers. Although poverty does disproportionately impact people of color. The average homeless person in this country is a, a nine-year-old white girl. That's the face of homelessness and a lot of other faces. And these statistics are broad and deep. 70% of people who are poor are women and children. About half of African-American kids are living in poverty, especially in, in cities and rural communities across the South. So again, poverty is reaching all kinds of people. There's a demon in the city of angels. America the terror, a first-class merc in a hand-me-down skirt. Hide her tears so well, it don't run her mascara. She say, stay in your lane if you broke. What if your car on E and you parked on Skid Row? Why you out here building bridges with countries causing division? We live under overpasses, overshadowing our children. Huh. I fear it, I fear it, the trillion you spend. It could probably save a million if you shared a shilling. Just holler today, we'll probably today. It's families living yearly on $2 a day. If we pray, Jesus saves, then who take it away? Can't even beg on bidding me when the hook worms awake. Uh, so it's pillar to the pavement. I can hear the earth's heartbeat fading, fading, fading. I think what we've got uh, politically is that there is a division between the rich, basically, who are seen to be hardworking, uh, productive, good citizens, and in whom any money invested will be repaid for the society. That, of course, is a pretty dubious characterization, given that many of the wealthy pay no taxes, that many of them don't actually do anything productive. They simply uh, earn money from inheritances or uh, investments or whatever. And on the other hand, you've got people who live in poverty and you've got a classic stereotype there of someone who's lazy, who avoids work uh, at all costs, who watches television all day long, sits around on a sofa, and is generally pretty immoral, I suppose one might say. When most people use the term welfare, they're talking about a small program uh, that used to be known as Aid to Families with Dependent Children, that today is known as Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. I think we can actually define welfare more broadly, so we can think about corporate welfare, we can think about welfare programs for middle-class families, such as educational programs and loans, we can think about the mortgage tax deduction as a kind of welfare program, but most people are talking about programs for the poor in particular. The Aid to Families with Dependent Children program that was formed in 1935 as a part of the Social Security Act during the Great Depression. And that was a program that was designed to support single poor mothers in particular. Today, a hope of many years standing is in large part fulfilled. The civilization of the past hundred years with its startling industrial changes, has tended more and more to make life insecure. Young people have come to wonder what would be their lot when they came to old age. The man with a job has wondered how long the job would last. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens. 
who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. At the time, there was a, it was an economic crisis, and there were a number of single mothers who did not have a male breadwinner in the household. And so the assumption was that the state needed to step in to provide economic assistance for these families. At the time, the vast majority of recipients were white women. In fact, African-American women, Latina women, were excluded from the welfare programs. And some of that was the assumption that white women were were primarily mothers, and women of color ought to be in the workforce uh, and employed. And that was the sort of root of the program. By the 1950s and the 1960s, welfare increasingly admitted African-American women and Puerto Rican women as recipients. And this is the same moment when welfare becomes increasingly controversial. And a lot of this is uh, rooted in the idea that African-American women shouldn't are, are undeserving of welfare assistance, that in fact, if jobs are available, they ought to take those jobs instead of receiving welfare assistance. The idea of someone taking advantage of the system was really rooted in a racialized and gendered conception of welfare. And I think it's summed up in the term welfare queen, which was coined in the 1970s, was popularized by Ronald Reagan. And it's the stereotype of a black single mother who is living in the inner city, who has multiple children by multiple fathers, and who is a drain on the public funds. More must be done to reduce poverty and dependency, and believe me, nothing is more important than welfare reform. It's now common knowledge that our welfare system has itself become a poverty trap, a creator and reinforcer of dependency. And that's why last year, in my State of the Union message, I called for an overhaul of our welfare system. There are a couple points I would make about the reforms in the 1990s that are very important. Both the 1994 Crime Bill and the 1996 Welfare Reform Bill were bipartisan measures. They were supported by both Democrats and Republicans. Both ways of criminalizing the poor, although differently. The 1994 Crime Bill increased federal funding for prison construction. It gave states a lot more money to incarcerate people. And I think the 96 Welfare Reform Bill is also a form of criminalization by cracking down on welfare recipients, by having these mandates, by greater surveillance. It simply made it much harder for people to get on welfare assistance. I think we have to ask, how are those people surviving? How are they able to make ends meet? How are they able to put food on the table? And the existence of extreme poverty in the United States, one of the richest countries in the world, should really shock all of us. And I think it's something that should be a call to action for rethinking our social policy. The only welfare queen I know is a white man. He a hoe, he sucking the country broke. Got his hand up the purse of every pocket and wallet. Then got the nerve to pledge allegiance to the wife in his locket. Boy, stop it. SOS on the tax form. Complain about reform. Bankrupt, now they reborn. Every company, your new baby daddy, CEO in the caddy, sitting pretty, no fatty, where they do that at? Man, we know that's facts. High pot, there's kettle, near one, y'all black. More like a silver spoon, white line on a cone. Now all the women and children are staring at you, stirring the pot, you the ladle. 
They have you make the whole meal and you can't sit at the table A puppeteer's dance, but they pull in the cable The American dream is just a book full of fables The biggest challenges are these philosophical ones are the basic values issues and specific recommendations whether about the child health insurance program or the SNAP food stamp program or whatever are not likely to make any difference unless there's a basic change in the mentality which says that every person in the United States simply because they are American or entitled to be in the country are entitled to at least a an absolute minimum standard of living that will be guaranteed by the respective governments. As long as that philosophy is unacceptable, there won't be these changes and there will be a continuing move to make the rich ever richer and assume that that will eventually help the poor, which has never been shown to be the case. I know people, they work three jobs. And they live next to somebody who doesn't work at all. And the person who's not working at all and has no intention of working at all is making more money and doing better than the person that's working his and her ass off. And it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. I think the starting point is the fact that the United States comes in lowest or almost lowest in almost all of the key statistics relating to social well-being when compared against all of the other rich countries. The so-called OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, ranks some 30 or so countries and the U.S. is consistently right down the bottom in terms of life expectancy, child mortality, child nutrition, a whole range of other factors which one would have expected a rich country to actually achieve dramatically different results. In the U.S., more than 23,000 babies die in their first year. Among those, black infants die at a rate twice as high as white infants. According to stats from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the infant mortality rate for black infants is 11.1 as compared to rate of 5.0 for white infants, 5.9 for some Latino infants, and 4.0 for Asian infants. Even uh, healthcare, the United States spends vastly more than almost any other country, and yet the healthcare outcomes are dismal. You wouldn't choose to live in the United States if you are making your decision solely on the basis of decent health care. So I think that lays the groundwork for the basic challenge, which in my view leads to the conclusion that the best way to improve the well-being of the whole society is to indeed adopt a more sustained approach that aims to improve the conditions at the bottom. We have a real crisis of poverty in this land, and our society is not addressing that crisis currently. We were in Alabama. We connected up with some leaders there whose children have literally died in their arms because of the lack of Medicaid expansion. Their state governments did not expand Medicaid, and what that has meant is a death sentence for thousands of people. And so instead of of helping and and making opportunities and improving the economy through something like Medicaid expansion, you know, states like Alabama and others have actually gotten in the way of progress and of helping save people's lives. I think when we're talking about the extremely poor, we're talking about people who are on the verge 
of being close to death, who don't have homes. These are people who might be eating out of a dumpster. These are people who are really living on the margins of society and have no, literally no other forms of assistance or support networks to uh, help them. Inequality is actually very inefficient economically. Uh, it doesn't ensure that uh, there is necessary competition. It doesn't ensure that decisions are made in the interests of the society as a whole. And sooner or later, the degree of inequality which is growing so radically in the United States as a result of these tax cuts begins to be problematic in terms even of economic growth. Many other countries have explicitly expressed their concern about inequality and tried to take steps to bring about a slightly better redistribution and so on, while the United States is heading very rapidly in a very different direction. So I think internationally, the US is more or less leading the pack in terms of a philosophy that elevates inequality as a desirable objective, contrary to almost all of the economic evidence. Say a prayer, send for me. Don't let them kill my symphony. If they mention me, don't let them write my story out of history. Poverty is colorblind, so why America tries so hard to beat the eyes? We in a third world house with a first world mouth. When you marry to the money, you can never know your spouse. The middle class is formerly known as tenements. The tent city ain't a thing of the past. Healthcare to welfare for the powers that be. They'd rather charge you for living, but they'll kill you for free. <laughs> Build a jail before an institution. You see that as a contribution? Here's a true solution. From this day forward, it's the poor people's movement. The poor people's movement. Uh. The Newsbeat Podcast is owned by Newsbeat Inc. Visit us at usnewsbeat.com. The producer and host of Newsbeat is Manny Faces. Our editor-in-chief is Christopher Taworski. Newsbeat's managing editor is Rashed Meehan. The executive producer of Newsbeat is Jed Morey. Our podcast and website are co-produced and managed by Morey Creative Studios. Newsbeat relies on listener support and grants. Artists that appear on the podcast are compensated for original material. To support Newsbeat or contribute to our Artist-in-Residence program, visit us at usnewsbeat.com and click on support. Subscribe to Newsbeat by Maury Creative Studios wherever you download your podcasts by searching for Newsbeat.